Good morning, Woodland Hills. Uh, I appreciate... They call the Mighty Revivalists. I want to get the name right. Mighty Revivalists. You guys rock. Let's give them a hand. Thank you. We welcome you being here. Appreciate that. It's a long, long, long journey. (laughs) I love it. All right, all right. Um, And I want to say this, that, you know, there's different ways of worshiping. There's also different ways of listening to sermons. Um, And uh, as a church that wants to be inclusive of different cultures, different perspectives, we don't want this to be, we set the table and everyone's got to join our way of doing things. Um, You know, if it's natural for you to say amen, I'm okay with that. (laughs) I'm more than okay. I like my background as Pentecostal. So... I like amenins, you know, amen, say it, brother, and, and uh, I, I, you know, in fact, the, the first all-black church I ever preached at, I was about three minutes into the sermon, and all of a sudden, a lady in the front row stands up and says, you know what you're talking about, and I was like, you know, I went, but, but thank you, <laughs> but before long, you know, it was another person, amen, that, whatever, and, and, and it was just, a, it was a wonderful time. Now, uh, Mary, uh, when, when there's a lot of interaction like that, I'm not saying there will be, but it does lengthen the sermon some. <laughs> it takes up time. So, you, you know, that's why you got white folk time and black folk time. And maybe white folks need to learn a little bit more from black folks about being less bound tight on time. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That was not a part of the script. Okay. So, hey, here's the thing. Um, I get asked, well, no, I was, I, I've been asked a couple times, um, one rather recently, why do you celebrate Martin Luther King Day? Because it doesn't seem like Woodland Hills is all that big on holidays. We don't make a big deal of the cultural holidays. We don't celebrate the 4th of July or, or Valentine's Day or Veterans Day or Memorial Day or you know, we say a word about Mother's Day once in a while, but we're not big on that kind of stuff, right? So a person was saying, look, you only celebrate Christmas and Easter and Martin Luther King. I think that's the three that we kind of celebrate. So, so that puts it as a pretty high priority. Why is that? And, and the person would ask me, is it because you're trying to be politically correct? Like, like oh, you, that's a cool thing to do. And I wanted to hit the guy, but I, I'm a pacifist, so I refrained. <laughs> Unsurpassable worth. But here's the thing, because you've got to be able to say everything, right, without getting slugged. Um, but you see, we celebrate Christmas because Christmas is all about the kingdom. And we celebrate... Uh, Easter because Easter is all about the kingdom. We don't celebrate the 4th of July because 4th of July is not all about the kingdom. But folks, Martin Luther King was all about the kingdom. <laughs> uh, he's all about the kingdom. He's about the kingdom for what he stood for in terms of racial reconciliation, racial equality, and social justice. But even, I think, more importantly, or just as importantly, he was, it's not just what he was about and what he accomplished, as wonderful and great as that was, it's how he went about doing it. And this is the part that gets lost a lot. Uh, See, King based everything that he did, his whole project for bringing about social transformation was based on the gospel. And Martin Luther King saw that in the the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus, um, loving your enemies and refusing to retaliate, refusing to engage in violence, that was at the center of everything. A lot of Christians don't see that. But this is the center of, of, of what Jesus was about. That's why he makes this. Your willingness to love your enemies and to not retaliate, it makes this the criteria, the benchmark for being considered a child of God. Matthew 5, 44 and 45. And so Martin Luther King saw that. Um, but then he asked the question, what would happen if if great multitude of people, a collective people who were oppressed and all who were willing to enter into solidarity with them, what if they adopted this 
This mindset about loving your enemies and, and, and not going forward in hostility, but rather forgiving and, and not retaliating. Breaking the cycle of violence by refusing to retaliate. What would happen if a group of people did that? Because this is the power of God. Paul calls it the power of God. It's the power of the cross. It's the power of self-sacrificial love. Martin Luther King says, well, if, it's, if that's the power of God, then what if a bunch of people practiced it? They don't all have to be Christians, but they, to participate in this, they all have to agree about loving their enemies and about uh, turning the other cheek and about not retaliating. And so he would tell people before the marches, I don't want you marching unless you can honestly say that you're doing this, not just for your own liberation, but for the liberation of your white oppressors. Because they are enslaved in their racism. And until we're all free, none of us are truly free. Amen? Amen. So, so uh, he, he got that part of it and he put this into action. He and Gandhi were the two geniuses in history that thought, what would happen if a bunch of people actually took this seriously? Maybe this actually works. So he would tell people before they go on the marches that, that whatever happens there, you do not retaliate. Uh, they may turn hoses on you, uh, but you're not going to retaliate. They may sick dogs on you, but you're not going to retaliate. They may beat you, but you're not going to retaliate. Uh, they may throw you into prison falsely, but you're not going to retaliate. Whatever they do, whatever comes at you, whatever evil they throw at you, your job is to respond the opposite way. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And see, this was the centerpiece of his, uh, of his policy, was that he knew that when you, when you respond, in hostility to hostility, you just lock in your opponent in their hostility. You just justified in their mind what they're doing to you. But when you refuse to sink to their level and, re and rather respond in kindness and with love, uh, at least minimally not, not responding in violence, well, see, that highlights the wrong that they're doing to you. It exposes you become a mirror by which their ugliness is reflected. It's what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 12. When, 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 when he says, folks, leave all vengeance to God. Never avenge yourselves. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Who's going to repay? The Lord. Who's not going to repay? Us. All right. Leave it all to him. Have no accounts. In other words, God is keeping all accounts. Whatever wrongs need to be righted, he'll take care of it. Whatever, whatever the moral rule of the universe requires, retaliation or vengeance or whatever, God will take care of all that. Which means we're to take care of none of that. We're, we're to have closed accounts. Ask yourself the question. Are you keeping any accounts? Because to the degree that you're keeping accounts, you're playing God. That's not a good game to play. Don't keep any accounts. So then Paul goes on to say, no, instead of, instead of thinking eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, if, you, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. And if they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals of, on, on their heads. And so don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. When, 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 when you sink to the level of the person coming at you with their hostility, now you're, you've allowed evil to overcome the good. Now you're being defined by them. But Paul says, instead, do the opposite. Respond to evil with love. And, and what that does then is it heaps coals of fire on their head. And that's just an idiomatic way of saying you bring conviction on them, bring shame on them. Why? Because now you become a mirror by which they can see their own ugliness. And it opens up the possibility... That, that, that this enemy might become a friend. Their, their heart will change. Whatever goodness is in them will see the ugliness that is there and bring about a change. So Martin Luther King saw that the only way to really bring about lasting change in an individual or in a society is to change people's hearts. He said this. Uh, he said, I'm foolish enough to believe that this love, that through the power of this love, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. 
And then we will be in God's kingdom. You'll know you're in God's kingdom when men and women who have recalcitrant hearts are beginning to be transformed. Martin Luther King saw that laws can't do that. Laws can't do that. Policies can't do that. Um, only this kind of love can do that. And so here, he has all, this, all these folks who are doing the marches are sitting in on, on the, and, uh, with the restaurants. And in fact, they had, uh, they, some groups had training things where you had, to, you had to qualify to go in and sit in in a whites-only restaurant. And, and they, for the training, they would, they would imitate what the white folks are going to do to these folks. So they would spit on them, call them racist names, pour sugar on them, salt on them, ketchup on them, all the kind of taunting. And if any of these folks who, who, who couldn't take that in their training session, if they ever popped and lost it, well, they were disqualified. You had to qualify for this. Uh, and, and, and so when the, the nation saw, because the folks wouldn't retaliate, uh, they saw, it manifested the ugliness of the, the racism of the Jim Crow South and the ugliness of the police force and, 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 and the, the injustices that were being done. And it moved the heart of enough people to start changing the laws. See, laws can't change hearts, but hearts do change laws, praise God. And the reason that, it, that, that these hearts were changed is because there's enough people, a group of people who are willing to say, I'm going to, I'm going to fight this fight in a Jesus kind of way. Not in conquering them, not in subduing them, not in trying to oppress them, because that's what they're doing to me. No, we've got to break that cycle. I will re instead respond in love. I will re respond in kindness. I'll absorb that pain within myself. These are people who are willing to suffer. And that's what brings about the ultimate change of the world. That's the way Jesus did it, and that's the way King did it, and that's why we celebrate Martin Luther King weekend. Amen? Now, the thing is that tomorrow there'll be a lot of talks given on, on, for the Martin Luther King breakfast, and I encourage folks to attend those. Those are wonderful. It's a way of commemorating and, and keeping this, this movement alive. But I've been to a lot of them, and I'll tell you this. The message I just gave you about King is not a message I've ever heard given about King in the settings. There's a lot of given to him about the social justice and about the racial equality. And, and, and lot, wonderful things there, wonderful things. But that part about self-sacrificial love, that part about actually loving the enemy who's oppressing you, that part about never retaliating or engaging in vengeance, that part seems to be set aside. It doesn't surprise me at all that it seems to be set aside both in the culture and in the church because the church set aside Jesus' teaching on that a long time ago. It's one of the least obeyed commands of Jesus. We dance around it, sing around it, whatever. So it's not surprising, but that's all the more reason why we want to celebrate it because there's not too many people out there that are capturing this essential aspect of King. The thing is, the reason why this part gets set aside so easily is because it costs us. It costs us. You've got to be willing to fight that natural instinct or that fallen instinct, actually, to fight back. You've got to crucify yourself to, to do this. It costs us something. It costs Jesus everything. It costs Martin Luther King everything. And so if we're going to live this way, actually live out this call, we've got to expect it to at least cost us something. Now, maybe it won't cost us everything, but the kingdom is always about bleeding. You'll know that you're doing kingdom stuff and you're living in a kingdom of life because you're bleeding. There's a sacrifice there. There's a pinch. It, 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 there's, this, there's something that is, is, needs to be surrendered. The kingdom always is about that. Now, so the thrust of the kingdom here goes against something that is so deep. There's a reason why this is so hard and a reason why it's so rarely done. It's because it's going something against something so fundamental in this fallen world and in this fallen culture. You've got to be willing to suffer to, to attain it. I can get at this fundamental difference by talking about two words. 
Xenophilia and xenophobia. First, xenophilia. The word xeno just means other or strange or different. And an enemy would be the ultimate different. All right? But xeno covers all that. Whatever's weird to you, different. Maybe it's a threat to you. Xenophilia, philia is the word for love. And so xenophilia is, is about loving that which is different from you, the one who is other than you, the one who is unfamiliar, the stranger. And see, this is what the kingdom is all about. This is the kind of God, love that God shows us. When, God, when we were yet enemies of God, when we were fallen in this estranged state, God loved us, xenophilia. And then God empowers us with his spirit to replicate that towards other people. And everything in the gospel can, can be defined as xenophilia. Everything in the kingdom can be defined as xenophilia. Love for the other, love for the stranger. Um, it, it's, not, it's at the very heart of the kingdom. You find it throughout the Bible. It's translated hospitality usually. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find that over and over again, the Lord telling people, don't just be living in a little self-enclosed, safe and familiar enclave. No, no, care about the other person. Care about the immigrant. Care about the non-Israelite. Care about the poor and the orphan. Care about those who are invisible to everybody else. Care about the Zeno. Because the Zeno covers all that. The one who's different than you. Fundamental thrust of, of, of the gospel. Maybe one of the best teachings, one of the most profound teachings on it, and it's also one of the ones that are the least obeyed by the church, not only today, but throughout history. It's found in Luke 14. Listen to this. Jesus said to the one who had invited him, he just got invited to this dinner, and he says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Why? In case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. How terrible that would be. See, this is how why most dinner parties are thrown. It's, it's, it's a subtle form of social quid pro quo, right? Uh, we, we pay each other back. Uh, it's, uh, you know, yeah. Birds of a feather flock together. That's the way the world kind of does things. But Jesus says, look, when you give a banquet, I use the word banquet, which means it's a feast, which means you're not going to give them your leftovers. You're going to give them your best. When you throw a banquet, make it good. And you go and you invite the poor, and the crippled, and the lame, and the blind. Go out and invite the folks that never get invited to parties, the invisible people, the xenos of the world. Invite the xenos of the world. It manifests xenophilia. Because most people are going to be xenophobic towards people like this. And Jesus says, if you do this, you'll be blessed. Because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I often say it around here that I, I believe that everything that we do that's just normal human stuff, that reverberates throughout our lifetime and maybe beyond that. But see, everything we do in the kingdom, everything that we do that's countercultural, that's a manifestation of the kind of love that God reveals on the cross, every bit of it reverberates throughout eternity. And Jesus is saying, when, when you make decisions about who you're going to invite to your dinner parties, be thinking eternally. What's going to reverberate throughout eternity? So don't do the normal thing. And I don't think he's saying that you, you can't ever invite friends and family over for dinner. Of course not. But he is saying this. Uh, there ought to be times where you have parties where you do the opposite of that. Where you're not just staying in your comfortable zone, your safe zone, the familiar zone. Uh, you push out of your comfort zone and begin to invite other people. The ones that never get invited. Now, that could be very complicated. If you're going to go out in the world, you're going to invite the blind and the cripples and, 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 and other folks who are being judged by others. It's going to maybe ruin your reputation. 
There'll be a lot of complexity. How do you throw a banquet? I've never thrown a banquet for a blind person. How does that work? Uh, or for a person who, whose legs don't work. Uh, how does that work? All these things would be, be a lot easier just to invite your family and friends. And by the kind of weird, maybe their customs aren't our customs, their ways of doing things are going to be different than us. They're low life, you know, they don't even know the basic manners of being in the middle class. A lot of complexity here. Jesus says, just do it. Uh, get the courage to push out of your comfort zone to express love towards the Xenos of the world, the invisible folks of the world. You see, the, 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 the fundamental pull of the gospel, the call of the gospel, the call of the kingdom, is absolutely antithetical to this very fundamental, foundational thing called xenophobia. Xenophobia is the fear of the other. It's a suspicion of the other. And the, the, the most troubling aspect of this, folks, is that we all have this. This is deeply rooted in us. In fact, you can come at it from an evolutionary perspective. The brain, as it was evolving, its main job was to distinguish what's safe and what's not safe. And what was safe is what's familiar, what you're used to, what you're in control of, what you can navigate, right? And that would apply to your environment and that would apply to people. You're, you're, you feel you're, you're safe when you're around people that are like you. You know these people. You can trust these people. There's a person who's different. And immediately there's a suspicion. That might be trouble. And so we've, we, we have this. And so some of that's natural. Some of that you always got to be distinguishing between what's safe and what's not. But folks, if that is not ruled by love, if that impulse to, to catalog what's safe and what's not is not ruled by love, it controls us. And ever since the fall, it has controlled us. And the minute the, the human heart, the fallen human heart starts to get hungry and needs some worth and needs some life, needs something to feel worthwhile about itself because we all need that, it takes this xenophobia and it intensifies. It puts it on steroids. And now we're dealing with what we today would call racism. People get life from, the, from these differences. And you find that throughout history, this has been the case. Uh, the Egyptians had, their word for human was Egyptian. Everyone else was something else, else other than that. In ancient Egypt. And this is true throughout, for most people groups. Uh, they at least had a view that their, their tribe or their nation or their, their, their ethnicity was superior to others. They looked down on others. They were so subhuman or, or what have you that, that justified them, treated them however they wanted to. So it's a staple of human history. This is deeply rooted in us. It's why it's so tenacious. why it takes such discipline, commitment, and community to swim upstream on this. You can see how foundational, how fundamental, and how important this battle is. Xenophilia conquering xenophobia. You can see how, how fundamental it is, it, it, even in the early church. Now get this. And I never saw this as clear as I saw it this week as I was preparing for this message, but the number one obstacle to the church moving forward, to the kingdom moving forward in the early church, the number one obstacle was, you guessed it, racism. Think about this. If racism was the number one obstacle that they're uh, fighting back then, perhaps it's one of the, if not the, number one obstacle we're fading, uh, facing now. So here, here, I'll set it up like this. I'm going to talk about Peter, but I want to set it up like this. Jesus spends three years telling his people, telling his disciples, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom can't be put into your categories. My kingdom is going to be all-inclusive. People are going to come from the east and the west. My kingdom is not going to be a Jewish thing. It's going to include all nationalities and all people and all tribes. He spends his three years teaching on that. And he models it with his life. He didn't go by any, you know, in ancient Judaism, they had their own kind of Jim Crow laws, right? Jews weren't supposed to eat with Gentiles. They weren't supposed to interact with them. There's all these rules around different people groups. Jesus broke all those rules, both on race and on gender and on class. He was a rule breaker. 
by how he lived. He just refused to abide by. He, it was a form of civil disobedience. When he decides to go through Samaria and talk to a Samaritan woman who's been married five times, that's an act of civil disobedience. You're not supposed to do that. When, when, he, when he praises the Roman centurion and praises Samaritans, even over their own holy religious people, well, that's scandalous. But see, he's living anti-racism. He's living anti-nationalism. He's living the kingdom, which knows no bounds and has no categories and doesn't isolate people from one another. So he, he, Jesus spends his time doing that. His last words to them. And you, you save your last words for what you really want them to remember, right? Okay, don't forget this. I'm, I'm going to send now, but remember this. Go into all the world. Right? Go into all the world and make disciples. Which, of course, means that you're going into all the world, leaving the comfort of your little, little enclave in Jerusalem and going out and learning different cultures, learning different languages. You're mixing it up with different people so that you can make disciples of them. His last word, going to all the world. Diversify. Xenophilia. So that's why, right? As soon as Jesus ascended, they went out and evangelized the world, didn't they? No, they didn't. Six years later... Six years later, Philip made it up into Samaria, good for him, but that was more a result of a persecution than it was about a conviction to go into all the world. But everyone else is still hanging around Jerusalem. They're still hanging out there in Palestine, where they, right where Jesus left them. Um, and why? After all that Jesus did, all Jesus said, all that Jesus modeled, why are they sitting in their butts in Jerusalem? And the answer is, I submit to you just this, I'll prove it here in a second, Jews don't like Gentiles. Those Gentiles are dogs. They're, they're yicky. They, they don't eat the right food. They eat gross food. They don't obey the laws. They don't even be, aren't even decent. They smell funny. They dress funny. They look funny. They eat funny. They dance funny. Everything about them, they are unclean. And we are clean. So it went in one ear out the other, or they just conveniently forgot or whatever. But whatever happened to that, go into all the world, they're just sitting around. It got so bad. Now get this. It got so bad. If you read Acts 10, we don't have time to look at the passage right now, but in Acts 10, God has to go to the Gentiles to say, hey, will you go tell my, my people, these Jewish Christians, to come and evangelize you because they're not listening to me. <laughs> he does. Read it for He sends this angel. He says, hey, okay, will you, you go over to Joppa, and you're going to find this guy there named Peter, and, and invite him to come to the house and preach the gospel to you. <laughs> so the guy does. He, he sends a bunch of people over to see Peter. Now, Peter is up on the roof of his house in Joppa. And uh, he's praying up there because in the first century, those houses didn't have much privacy space. If you want some privacy, you've got to go on the roof. So he's up there uh, praying, and he falls into a trance. It's a bizarre trance. He sees all these animals coming down on a bed sheet, being, being like lowered from the four corners. And the bed sheet is full of these unclean animals. Animals that were pronounced to be unclean back in Leviticus 11 and a few other places. There's a sharp distinction between what you can and what you cannot eat if you're a Jewish person. So this was a blanket full of all the kind of food that you cannot eat. Peter's revolted by it, but then he hears the Lord say, I want you to kill them and eat them. And every vegetarian and vegan has been offended ever since. But well, God's an accommodating God, so we'll go with it. So he says, I want you to eat those things. And Peter goes, I can't. I'm a righteous person. I've never, I've never defiled myself with eating those kind of animals. And then the Lord says, whatever I've created is, can't be unclean. You can eat it. Well, Peter doesn't get it. So God shows him the exact same vision verbatim two more times. Roll it again. He's not getting it. All right, roll it again. He's not getting it. And after the third time, he still doesn't get it. 
Because Luke tells us, he says, after this, Peter was greatly puzzled. Like, what is going on here? And you can see why. Because he's a person of the book. He goes by the Old Testament. The Old Testament commands him to never eat unclean animals or you'll be an abomination to the Lord. Now the Lord comes back and says, I want you to eat them because they're not unclean. Now that would cause some cognitive dissonance. When it, I can't get into it right now, but uh, it's the kind of cognitive dissonance we like around here quite a bit because it reveals that God back then, when he gave those unclean, clean, all those laws there, that wasn't what he really thought about things. He was accommodating the needs of the, of the, of the current time. But Peter's not, he doesn't know that. So he's conflicted. Well, just as he's puzzling over this whole thing, the guy knocks on the door, coming all the way from Cornelius' house. Some, I think it was like two, two day travel away. And the guy says, would you come and preach the gospel for us? Because uh, the angel sent us. And Peter then agrees with it. Uh, and, 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 and goes with these folks over to Cornelius' house. So he gets there. Two day journey or whatever. And, and, and the first thing he says to Cornelius is, may I ask why you have sent for me? Now enter into that question here, folks. After all, everything Jesus has said and taught for three years, everything Jesus modeled, yeah, and all of that, he still doesn't know what he's there for. He should know what he's there for just on the basis of Jesus saying, go out into all the world. I'm here to preach the gospel because wherever I go, I'm supposed to be preaching the gospel. But Peter doesn't get that. And none of these early disciples get that. Uh, they're, they're like, what, what, what? it hasn't yet occurred to him that this gospel is for everybody, including the people that you think are unclean. And, and, and so they explain to Peter, like, well, about the angel coming and telling him, whatever. Then Peter says, finally the coin drops in the slot. He goes, hmm, I perceive that, that God is, he, he, he shows no partiality. Wow, Peter, that's great. <laughs> Three years with Jesus, filled with the Spirit, six years later, and a pagan has to teach you that God shows no partiality. I, I love it. I love it. And God will frequently use pagans to teach Christians if the Christians are humble enough to listen to them. <laughs> God does everything backwards. So here Peter's like... God shows no partiality. Well, I guess I'm supposed to preach to you then. So he starts to preach to them. And these folks are so ripe for the picking that about four sentences into Peter's sermon, the Holy Spirit falls on all of them, and they begin to speak in tongues and to prophesy. And Peter goes, whoa, that's what happened to us back in Acts 2 when, when, when the Spirit filled us. I guess God has accepted them. And if God's accepted them, well, then he says this. Listen to this. He goes, well, then can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Can anyone withhold? Why would anyone want to withhold? Who, who came up with that idea that you're supposed to withhold it from anybody? The answer is racism. These people are so convinced that salvation was only for Jews, not for Gentiles, that after all that God did, after all that Jesus said, after all that Jesus modeled, they still weren't getting it. Finally, the Spirit of God breaks through and blows the whole thing sky high. And Peter says, I guess we've got to stop forbidding them to be baptized. I guess we're supposed to include them. Folks, and it's, this shows how deep this, this is, right? Uh, and it's kind of encouraging to me that they, this was the number one thing that they struggled with because you ought to feel good if you're struggling with it. At least you're struggling with it. The ones I worry about are the folks who are struggling with it because that means they're in bondage to it. Uh, it's, it. This runs deep. It's hard to get out. It's tenacious. You got to wake up to it. But it's still not over because a couple of years later, Peter is down in Antioch where they're having this big meeting of sorts, and, 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 and uh, Peter's hanging out with the Jews, and there's some Gentile believers there. But he's also hanging out with them. He's doing good. He's mixing it up. This doesn't happen usually. But then some Jewish brothers show up, and they're still, they're still going by the, the old Jim Crow Judaism laws, and where Jews aren't supposed to be eating with Gentiles. And so they separate themselves from the from Christian Gentile brothers, and Peter joined them. 
So when, Peter, when Paul shows up, and you read about this in Galatians 1, when Paul shows up, he has to ream Peter out, say, Peter, you hypocrite, this isn't what we do in the gospel. It's just a symbol for how, this is why this is so difficult, uh, and why it takes tenacity and stamina to be swimming upstream. Uh, this, this stuff is really deep. It's, the fundamental pull of the fallen culture is towards familiarity. Let's be honest with it. We like things when they're familiar. Because they're comfortable and they're safe. They're secure. We're feeling control. We're used to this. Right? It's the sameness. We get a security from it. And so there's this pull in this direction. But the kingdom call is to move in the opposite direction. Where, yeah, we all need some familiarity, sure. But that's got to be balanced by the, by the call of the gospel. To always be knowing the unfamiliar. To be loving what is different. To be exploring what is an alternative. Uh, to, to, to be pushing the envelope. To saying no to that pull towards comfort and convenience. The pull of the culture is to say, oh, don't take any risks. But you can't obey the gospel without taking some risks. To become cross-cultural is to take some risks. To be willing to be disoriented sometimes. The, the, the fundamental pull of the fallen world is to, is to create an us-them mindset. And, and to feed off that contrast. Us versus them. And those people are a category. Those people are a what? Those people are a this or a that. And they rake out a high hierarchy of this or that. And, and, and so we depersonalize them as much as the Egyptians ever did. Uh, but the call of the gospel is to move in the opposite direction. Amen? The call of the gospel is, you, you, you don't, you get rid of the categories. Paul said if you're in Christ, you don't see people in terms of categories. You see people in terms of who they are in Christ. Read 2 Corinthians 5. And so in the kingdom, we lose the categories. In the, in the kingdom, we look at people in terms of a, a, a who, not a what. Because who's should never be reduced to a what. Somebody say amen. Who's are not categories. They're not labels. In the kingdom, we're to be taken off those things. Knowing that we're all broken, but we're all loved by God as he is. We're all in the process of being transformed. We've got no business filing and categories and judging and all of that. That's why Paul said in Christ, all that stuff is gone. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, bond, slave, this, that, or the other thing. All been abolished in, 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 in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Who's created this one new humanity in Christ Jesus. This one new humanity. This is why Jesus died, you guys. He died, Ephesians 2, to create this one new humanity. To put on display the beautiful diversity of God. As though one skin tone could do that. No, to put on the artistic work of God. He created one new humanity in which all the walls that tore us down and divided us have been torn down and abolished, praise God. And now God is making peace by means of the cross. And to, say, to make peace by means of the cross means you're making peace by means of self-sacrificial love. You're making peace by people willing to go outside their comfort zone. There's always a cost. This is why very few people do it. But we, we've got people to be the ones who stand up and say, sign me up. Uh, be a people who are willing to suffer, are willing to not always get their way. This, this runs so antithetical to consumer church, you guys. Um, and so Martin Luther King said it rightly when he said, you know, Sunday morning is the most segregated uh, time in, in America. Um, Thank God that's changing a little bit very, very, very slowly, but it's, it, it, it's somewhat. But the, the main obstacle to it is the consumer Christianity. We're conditioned to see ourselves as our, a consumer. I am a consuming thing. I'm a unit of consumption. And then when we go to church, we tend to have the same mindset. So we ask, what's in it for me? What do I like? What are my preferences? How, how, well, what church most satisfies my, 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 my views on things and my ways of doing things? Where do I feel most comfortable? Where do I feel most safe? Where can I get the nice coffee cup holders so I can put my coffee so to spill on the ground? Who's got the best parking space, best children program, best whatever? And see, if, 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 so you're trying to attract people and keep them by constantly feeding them what they want. And folks, if you're doing that, you're, only, you're not going to be pushing anyone's comfort zone. You're not going to be challenging anything. You're not going to be 
Peter would never confront his xenophobia in a church where it's feeding his xenophobia. You will, to the degree that you're in, you live in a homogenous bubble, to that degree, you will have xenophobia. The other will seem strange to you because you're not exposing yourself to the other. And right now in this culture, we're creating these silos of all sorts of ideological silos, racial silos. People are getting in their own little bubbles. We've got to be the people that are saying, we will not be bubbled. We will not be siloed. We will not be myopic. We will not be trapped in a little tiny grid. We will not be brainwashed. We follow the call of the gospel, which is always about finding the philia and the zeno. Where are the zenos? Let's learn to love them. Let's learn to include them. Let's learn to embrace them. Take off the categories. This is, I know I talk about this too much, but this is why I love the tap. The tap, it means touching all possibilities. It's a program we have here where we, we just obey Luke 14, we throw a party. And invite people who never get invited to parties. And, and folks, that we, people with disabilities, cognitive impairments, whatever, whatever the issue is. And we say, come and be part of a party. And we let them be the stars of the party. And I will tell you that in the last year, nothing has fed my soul like going to the tap. I have all, I, 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 the, be- the beauty that you see when you get rid of all the supposed tos. The sp- here's how the song's supposed to sound. Here's what a good sound song is like, supposedly. Here's how it's, you're supposed to look. Here's how you're supposed to behave. Here's how you're supposed to talk. When you can lose all of that stuff, you can see the beauty of what is. You never see the beauty of what is until you get rid of the ugliness of what's supposed to. Get rid of that. And, and, and see, this is what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, look at the new creation. Behold, everything is new. Old things have passed away. All things are new. Uh, so folks, if you find yourself in a community where it's like, man, you know, this isn't, uh, the, sometimes they play songs that I don't like very much. Sometimes they play songs that I can't find the beat to. Sometimes they play songs that I can't get the words out fast enough. Sometimes they play songs that are a little too loud. Sometimes it's, it's a little, I'm not very comfortable. People actually get rowdy there. One time a person scared me because they said amen next to me. I wasn't ready for it. And see, folks, if you find yourself in a community like that, the consumer mindset says, oh, these are reasons to leave. But I submit to you, the kingdom mindset says, these are reasons to stay. You're in a, at least someone's pushing someone's comfort zone. You'll know that you're in a kingdom church if you move in the direction where nobody gets it all their way. Because these are people who are learning how to, how, how to share it with other people's way. Uh, they're learning how to embrace the difference. They're no longer afraid of the zeno, but they're embracing the zeno, celebrating the zeno. Folks, that is the kingdom of God. You know, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out. First thing that happens is people start to speak in tongues. And, and people hear them in their own language. It's an incredible miracle. And you ask, well, why, why did that happen? And folks, I, I think it's kind of obvious. Because the Lord is saying here, right at the get-go, when the Spirit is poured out, all of the barriers that have set, kept people apart, all the things that go back to the Tower of Babel, according to the, the, the biblical account, they will be overcome. Where the Spirit of God is moving, people will be finding ways to mix it up with people they usually don't mix it up with. Where the Spirit of God is working, you're going to find that the walls of suspicion are coming down. You're going to find that enemies are being transformed into friends. And suspicions are being turned into an embrace. Where the Spirit of God is moving, uh, you're going to find that people are having a fire for, for the zeno. Instead of being suspicious of them, there's a love there. There's an embrace. Where the Spirit of God is moving, somebody say amen to this one. You're going to find people who are learning to see people that maybe they used to be afraid of. And maybe they used to judge. They used to look down on. But now they're seeing the beauty of God in them. They're seeing as they are in Christ. They're seeing as part of the one new humanity, folks. That is the kingdom. That is the kingdom. And when you find a congregation that 
and having that kind of diversity when things are just weird, and you're just kind of out of place. Well, see, that's, that's, that's good news. That's not a reason to leave, that's a reason to stay. The only way to overcome xenophobia is exposure, to make the zeno less zeno-like. Zeno means other, different, strange. See, if you give in to the fear and never are pushing the envelope on the comfort zone, you'll always be afraid. In fact, the fear may deepen. The only way to overcome xenophobia is to begin to practice xenophilia and turn and face the fear and begin to embrace that. And that is the, the, the call of the gospel. So for all of us folks, it means this. I hope you can see how central this is. Xenophilia. How contrary it is to our normal Western mindset, and yet how central it is to the call of the kingdom. Uh, I, I feel a fire about this that is just humongous. It's a mindset. Most of us live most of the time in a little enclave of sameness. It's, right? You're blessed if you don't. But we have our family, and we have our friends, and very little space for anybody else. But folks, that's got to change. We've, to be a kingdom, there's always got to be a zeno that you're learning how to love. It's, 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 it's part of the DNA of the kingdom. And so asking the question, how can we better diversify, is, is going to be a crucial one for us as we move forward on this. So I'm going to end with five little quick tips, all right? On, 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 or four, four quick tips on, on, on how we can go forward on this. What, what, what can you do today to start doing this, right? Number one, just start practicing xenophilia in every way, shape, and form that you can think of practicing it. Think about where are there others I can love or at least greet or can welcome. Here's one suggestion here, every week when we come together. Uh, this is a, a segment I gave about a year ago, um, and I want to reiterate it now. The consumer mindset, which we are all, let's, the, the, we, we're all conditioned by this, but the consumer mindset says I go to church to get. And I go there because it's worth me getting to this. And the minute it's not being worth it, well, I'll stay home. Thank you very much. What's in it for me, okay? That's the consumer mindset. The kingdom mindset is never just about what do I get. It's always about how can I be used? How can I bless others? You're blessed to be a blessing to others. And so if the kingdom's all about hospitality, then when we come together here, this should be the time to practice it. To greet, yeah, hang out with your family and friends, but remember Luke 14. Apply it to your attending church. When you throw a banquet, don't just invite family and friends. Invite those who never get invited. Well, when you go to church, don't just hang out with family and friends. Uh, greet somebody who, uh, is, is, who has thus far not been invited in on your life. Uh, greet somebody who's, you, who you don't know. Meet somebody. Welcome them. Tell me you're glad here, you're here. If every one of us could do, one or, could do that with one or two or three people, well, we ought to be known as the friendliest place on the planet. Hospitality, Kingdom 101, but it's so crucial. Uh, so diversify in every way you can. Practice hospitality. Number two, educate yourself. And here I want to speak specifically to white folks. Uh, people of color can take it however it applies to them. But see, here's the thing. It's impossible to be educated in America and not be reading white people. But it's very possible to be educated in America and never have to read a non-white person. And, and, and so we've got to take extraordinary effort to... We, our job is to be look, being able to understand other perspectives, getting into that and being appreciating it instead of being suspicious of it. Well, read. Read books from, from people that don't look like you or follow people on, on blog or Twitter or whatever uh, to always be getting a, a slice at least of their experience of the world. It's different from yours. Uh, you, I encourage you to consider taking Oshita's class, which would be a great time to be uh, beginning to uh, learning about this and discussing it with others. Uh, number three, uh, you've got to weave diversity into your life. You know, 
Jesus wove this into his life. He, he actually, he, he lived it more than he taught it. Everything he did just was a pushing back against that, the, the injustice of the categories and the hierarchies and, 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 and the, the, the xenophobia. Um, we had to follow him to do the same. We have to be intentional. All of us, we have decisions, a million decisions that we make about where we're going to go, where we're going to buy things, how we're going to get the whatever. I would just ask us, I'm talking here mainly to white folks, to have on the radar screen the value of having diversity in your life. Uh, hanging, just having it around you. Um, and so when possible, think about ways that, if Jesus went through, through Samaria on purpose, most Jews would go around Samaria. But he went right through it. And the reason is because that's where the Samaritans live. And he wanted to talk to the Samaritans. Uh, if you want to diversify your life, you have to ask, well, how can I broaden my circle to include more of that diversity in my life? So I, I've got, I, I, I live downtown St. Paul, and on Selby, we got Selby and Grand, and I'm right in the middle of them. And on Selby, most of the stores are non-white, African-American, Hmong, uh, and, and some Arabic, uh, uh, Middle Eastern folks. And then on the Grand side of things, thing, it's predominantly white. And there's great restaurants on both, but I, all the things being equal, I will tend to go to Selby because I want to always be befriending, getting relationships there, getting to know people there. I go to this black barber shop. Uh, I've been doing it for eight years. And if you wonder why I'm so good looking, it's probably their credit. Okay? Uh, and I know you were wondering about that. So where does he get his haircut, man? So getting a haircut, I don't know if this is true across the board. But getting a haircut in this black barbershop is a very different experience than getting a haircut in any white barbershop that I've ever been in. And I love it. I love it. It's a little disorienting. I don't get to all the jokes. I can't keep up with everything. I sometimes figure I think they're laughing at me. But that's okay because I can laugh at myself. But as long, look, you get over that. At first it's kind of weird. Like, what's proper here? What do you, you know, I don't, I, I don't know the rules here. And that's good if you ever feel like you don't know the rules and you're a little confused and, and discombobulated. That's good. You're too used to being in control, so it's good to be out of control. And then just absorb it, and you see the beauty of it. Man, it takes twice as long, but it's a lot of fun. And we're watching Judge Judy while we do it. We're watching Judge Judy getting haircut. <laughs> Hallelujah. Diversify your life. As, as you're doing that, be open to and pre-pursuing relationships. Now, white folks, please, at the end of this service, don't go attack people of color. Say, will you be my best friend? Now, because they can worry about that right now. So this is not something I want you to act on in the next 10 minutes. I want you to live with this one. But be, to be cultivating relationships with people that are different from yourself. Because uh, it's those trusting relationships that give you, get on the inside of their perspective on things and their, their, the inside of their, their experience of racism, a context where you can talk and discuss those things. Parents read stories to your kids that have a diversity in them. And the final thing I'll say is James 1.19. Uh, and this applies to so much. Be slow to speak. Be, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And again, I want to end by just talking to white folks here. Uh, that doesn't come natural to us on a lot of things. Um, we don't know what we don't know. And so especially when there's like, uh, race-significant issues that happen, when things happen where it sort of expose the different worlds that, that, that we live in, and there's different interpretations of things, such as with the hug a couple months ago. When that happens, and this is the whole message I preached on in response to that event, but when that happens, be very quick to listen, because you don't know what you don't know. Be humble. Even if it sounds terrible to you, even if it sounds outlandish, you don't know what you don't know. 
And, and, and so take the time to empathize, to get on the inside of this, to learn, to ask questions. We are to be the people who manifest the one in humanity, folks. Everything in the culture and everything in the fallen world pushes against that. But will we, in the power of God and in the grace of the Spirit, be a people who will say, I'll swim upstream on this one. I'll push against the current on this one. I want to manifest the one in humanity. I want, to, I want to manifest the beauty of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And I'm willing to pay the price for it. I'll be uncomfortable. I'll listen to music maybe that doesn't come natural to me. I'll, I'll learn to get used to It's all this. It comes out in this final word. Oh, this is a revelation. Here it is. Yeah, you've got your normal. But your, nor your, your normal is not the normal. Learn how to get into other people's normal. Would you stand? Yeah. Hallelujah. All right. I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you're here this morning and could use anything in prayer, come on up here. They would love to pray with you. And uh, uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a devoted follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to consider becoming one. And if, that's, if there's something on your heart that pulls at you when I say that, come up here and talk to these folks at the front of the auditorium. They'd love to explain to you what it is to become a follower of Jesus. Folks, as we leave here, I, I just want to pray that the spirit of xenophilia, the spirit of the love of the, in, a, in a culture that is increasingly xenophobic, it's, it's intensifying, you guys. It, 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 it's, it's getting scary. But in this climate, it provides a wonderful opportunity for us to be a people who do the opposite thing. To live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. To practice hospitality. To have a love, not a fear for the other. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love the other. Amen.